Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Billing Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of the Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 8 of Spilling Chai, coming to you from the capital of a nation on fire figuratively and literally, it feels like the America I once knew, or thought I knew, is vanishing before my eyes. It is a nation divided over race, paralyzed by a global pandemic, the economy is in ruins, millions are unemployed, and as protests continue across the country, America's racial wounds and roots lay exposed for all to see. How do we move forward after the brutal murder of George Floyd at the hands of the police? Is America coming together or falling apart? Joining us on the show today to talk us through all this and more is CNN political commentator and USA Today op-ed writer, Sophia A. Nelson. Nelson is an award-winning author of three nonfiction books and a freelance journalist with Essence magazine. She can be seen frequently as a political pundit and legal analyst on CNN. Nelson is also an award-winning corporate diversity champion who coaches and trains Fortune 500 executives and senior managers. She is a weekly senior columnist for the Daily Beast and a columnist for USA Today and the New York Daily News. In 2018, Nelson was named by the UK's Guardian magazine as one of the most influential women leaders in the world. And today she joins us on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome, Sophia. Hey! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of yours on social media, and I look forward to what I know will be a great discussion. So as a Black woman in America in 2020, how would you describe what is happening in the country right now? Are we falling apart or finally coming together? Well, look, I think this is a 400-year-old wound, and we know that wounds that do not heal come back. They need to be cleansed again. They need sunlight again. They need to be healed. And so I think that, yes, we're in a moment where in one sense we're falling apart. We're coming apart at the seams. Literally, we're divided. On the other hand, this new generation of young people, the millennials, the kids in high school, a good part of our citizenry saw what happened with George Floyd and they were appalled, shocked and disgusted. And they took to the streets. Uh, I think we were all home paying attention. The COVID virus saddled us all. We've all been locked in. And that means we're paying attention to things that we might otherwise ignore. And I think that this happened at such a moment that no one could look away this time. They had to look and they had to see and then they had to decide what they were going to do about. So I think 
in the end, we're going to come out better. But I think that we are definitely in a moment where we're fighting literally for the soul of who America is going to be in the 21st century. Black people and people of color from day one have been calling this. We have been saying this president is a white supremacist. His administration pushes a white nationalist agenda. He is endorsed by the KKK. Black and brown people, we were all dismissed, told we were overreacting, accused of identity politics. Why is it so hard to call out racism in America? Are we in denial or just delusional about how central racism is in the DNA of this country? No, white people aren't affected by it at all. So it would be like someone who has, I don't know, think of some terrible disease like leprosy. Someone that has leprosy and they want you to understand what that experience is like. Well, one, you don't think about it because you don't have leprosy. Two, even if you see someone with leprosy, you stay away from them. You kind of move around them because you don't want to deal with that. You don't want to intersect with that. You don't want to interface with that. And that's what's happened with race. In many cases, black and brown people in America are like lepers. We're different. We have darker skin. We come from different origins. There's a historical context, particularly odious for Black Americans in this country who came here as slaves and who for 250 years were under a system of legalized slavery, then once freed, went to 100 years of legalized Jim Crow. So only in my lifetime, and I'm 52 years old, only in my lifetime has this issue of equality and interracial harmony and intersectionality and being a full member participant of society has that begin to come about. But you can't take 400 plus years. This country starts in 1607, folks, not 1776. We declared our independence in 1776. Slaves came here in 1619 in Virginia, where I live. So you can't take 400 years of something and then think that somehow you're going to fix it in 50. Does that make sense? So white people aren't affected by this. They don't experience it. So they don't see it as a problem because it ain't about them. And it's not something that touches their lives. So how could they possibly know what it's like? They can't. It has nothing to do about delusion. It has everything to do with privilege. And my privilege of my white skin entitles me to certain things. I'm entitled at my birth. And one of the things that I dislike is when I see whites get on and they say stuff like, well, my family didn't own slaves and I don't see color. Well, two answers to those two ridiculous statements. One, your family didn't have to own slaves for you to have privilege. You can be as poor as a church mouse, white in Appalachia, in West Virginia, in Arkansas, and still have more privilege than me as an educated black woman with a law degree and all the accolades I have in life because my black skin immediately identifies me as someone to be suspect, someone who is angry, someone who is this or that or not enough of this or that, somebody who needs to be corrected, checked, somebody who's less than. And until white people get a grip and understand that they do have privilege by the fact of their skin protects them, they don't get murdered by the police the way we do. We are eight times more likely to die at the hands of police or to experience violence. Look at the Stanford study, one of the best ever done on policing and how police, when they have black assailants or people who are suspected of crimes, will shoot more bullets into them than they will into a white person if they shoot at all. 
there is a fear factor which dates back to the beginning of America and racial stereotypes about big, dangerous black men, right? Scary, menacing black men and black women and all that goes along with blackness. So, yes, we are different because we have a different context here in America than does any other race because we were slaves here. In your latest article for The Daily Beast, you write, quote, America and Americans are seemingly awake from a Rip Van Winkle-like slumber as Confederate statues that never should have been erected after the Civil War and during Jim Crow are now being torn down. Unfair laws that have given police unfettered powers to restrain and use lethal force against citizens are being revoked and rewritten. Civil rights organizations, attorneys, and a new generation of Black leaders long considered unnecessary in a, quote, post-racial America are now very relevant again. And for the first time in my life, I am seeing and hearing white people have hard, courageous, uncomfortable conversations. So you sound hopeful in that piece. Are you hopeful? Well, I'm a pragmatist. You know, I'm a recovering lawyer, as I like to say. So I am one who likes to call things as she sees them. So like I said, on the one hand, we are deeply divided. There's a rise in racism. There's a rise in white supremacy. There's a rise in white nationalism. There's a rise in the KKK. And the president of the United States of America is helping to stoke it, which makes it worse. That's not an emotional response for me. That is a factual, provable. He has been dog whistling. He has been shameful in this moment. Shameful. On the other hand, to answer your question, I am hopeful because I see young people taking to the streets and the majority of them white in many cases. I see people marching in Alaska and Paris, France, all over this country, in Germany, in places where in solidarity, people tearing Confederate statues and monuments down and tearing them down with good reason because they don't belong there anymore. Why would we have statues to traitors who attack their own country? and sought to overthrow it and overturn it, who fought for the right to own my ancestors. By the way, for your listeners, just so you know, I am a direct lineal descendant of slaves on both sides of my parents. Both sides. I have grandparents. And ironically, on my mother's side, Grandpa Henry and Grandma Viney. Grandma Viney was a slave on a plantation in Georgia and Alfred Plantation, which is actually a famous plantation. And the descendants meet just like they do at Monticello and other places. But at any rate, she was a slave and she ran off with Grandpa Henry. They fell in love and they ran off together. Now, imagine this. You're talking 1800s. You're talking probably just before. Let's see. I got to go back a little bit. You're talking just before the Emancipation Proclamation. And he's a white boy from Georgia. She's a slave that his father owns. And they run off. They go to Oklahoma first which is a border state. And then eventually they make their way to California. They get married. They have 13 children, of which my mom is descended from them. On my father's side, it's more of a loving versus Virginia story where great grandpa, who was from North Carolina, fell in love with a black woman from South Carolina. And of course, miscegenation laws in the 1920s, they could not be married. So they fled literally in the night because it got out that they were going to get married and they moved to New Jersey. And so that's my father's lineage. So This stuff is real. This dynamic has been going on for a long time in this country, this black-white dynamic. But I brought that up to simply say that this is real for my family because I had a grandmother who was in bondage and a grandfather who was a slave owner's son who, wow, I think about him often. I think he must have loved that woman like something crazy because he gave up his heritage. He gave up his 
inheritance. He gave up everything and they ran off together. So an interesting story, but this is real stuff. And so for people who deny it, it bothers me because slavery was a heinous institution. It was cruel. It was vile. It separated families. It destroyed families. It was filled with rape and violence, both on male and female slaves at the hands of their owners and passers-by. And to think that we would have that type of stain on our history and that it not come forward in the ways that we're seeing it show up now is very naive. And it's very convenient for those that it does not impact. You used to be a Republican. What do you think happened to the GOP under Trump? Is it about the courts? Is it about stacking the courts with conservative judges? What happened? So the downward slide of the Republican Party started long before Donald Trump. Let's be clear. You got to go back to 1964 and Barry Goldwater. The last Republican to get high double digits was Richard Nixon in the 1960 campaign. John Kennedy was the first Democrat to carry the black vote since Reconstruction, because everybody knows blacks were Republicans, of course, because Lincoln freed the slaves and you have Grant and Reconstruction and all of that. But you have to go back to Barry Goldwater and the conservative movement that really was revitalized under Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Now, Reagan, happy warrior, right? He's an optimist. You're never going to hear Reagan speak the way you hear Trump speak. It just wouldn't have happened. Reagan, though, also did dog whistles. He started his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Schwarner Goodwin and Cheney were killed. There are these ways to signal to your base that I'm for whiteness. I'm for the whiteness of America, the preservation of whiteness of America without saying those words. Fast forward to Donald Trump and Donald Trump says the word. Donald Trump blows the whistle loud. Donald Trump has a megaphone that says, this is exactly how I feel. Those black NFL players, those sons of bitches, how dare they get on a knee and exercise their rights? I'm going to keep them in line in America. And so it's almost surreal to see where the party of Lincoln has fallen from its greatness. A party that was founded as an anti-slavery and abolitionist party is now a party that openly embraces white nationalist supremacists and racism. It just does. And so I can't be a part of a party like that. I'm not. I screamed and yelled for 30 years that we were headed in that direction. And presidents like George Herbert Walker Bush, who did well with the black vote, and even W had goodwill to a degree in the black community as governor of Texas. He did very well with black and brown voters, as you know. The problem is that these guys gave into the darker impulses of those that are advising the party, leading the party. If you look at the demographic makeup of the Republican Party, it is very, very white, very white. And it's very rural. It's embarrassing. You look at the interns. And again, that's Donald Trump's America. Donald Trump's America. He said it best when he I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You see me tweet that often when he'll say something. I'm like, wow. When he talked about Donna Reed of the Donna Reed show and back, you know, you talked about somebody who was the epitome of the 1950s pearl wearing leave it to beaver inner place. And he basically said, why can't these women be like Donna Reed in his world in the 1950s world Donald Trump grew up in? That's how women were. They were silent. They were domestic. They catered to their husbands and their families. They didn't have professions. They made dinner. They were seen and not heard. And that's the world he lives in. And black people were invisible. What inspires you? What motivates you to do the work that you do? 
Well, I think like most of us, I'm inspired and motivated by other great women and men in my life who mentored me, helped me, taught me, helped me to grow up. I think that it's the relationships in our lives that matter the most. I always tell young women, be relational, not transactional. They're different. And you can still have a good transaction. You can still get what you want. But if you can learn to be collaborative versus competitive, competing's okay. But if you can learn to collaborate with other women, if you can learn to be relational versus transactional, in other words, that woman has a heart, a soul, and a mind like me. That woman has dreams and desires just like me. What can I do to lift her as I climb? And I think that that is something that we need to instill each other because the men do it so much better than we do. They've been at it longer. They've had more practice. But men are really good at helping other men come up the ladder. Men are really good at covering for each other, making excuses for each other, looking out for each other. Women are very, and we can be, as you know, we can be very mean to each other and we can be very hard on each other. And that's a whole nother conversation. We can come on and talk about the woman code book one day and we can do it because your audience, I think, would love that. But I would want to say that for the black women listening and for women of color, I recommend you read my first book, Black Woman Redefined, Dispelling Myths and Discovering Fulfillment in Age of Michelle Obama. And I wrote that book because I knew that Michelle Obama was going to be the new first lady. And I knew that she was going to have a radical impact on the way that we saw black women in our culture, whether it was for four years or eight years. And she did. She presented this healthy, strong, loving, nurturing wife, mother. She didn't take a Hillary Clinton role, so she didn't get involved in policy and things the way Hillary did, which I think really hurt Hillary, right, in the long run. What Michelle did was play a more Laura Bush-esque kind of role, but she focused on fitness and eating well and taking care of your body. And even with that, they called her an angry black woman. And now think about it. Can you imagine? Nobody's less angry than her. But they called her that anyway. She really did the traditional first lady thing, working with military families. But even with that, the reason I bring that up is because you ask me what inspires me and what motivates me. It's to build a world before I leave that my two nieces, because they're like my kids. I didn't get blessed with children, but they are like my children and they're biracial. And I talk to them all the time about the two parts of them. They have a white mother who's blonde hair, blue eyed, very attractive. And they have a father, my brother, who's African-American. And there are two parts of them. And I try to tell them all the time, particularly in this moment, that this is the stuff you saw Aunt Sophia do when you were little, that maybe some didn't like a whole lot. Maybe they thought, to your point earlier in this podcast, how white people often look at us speaking up for ourselves or defending ourselves as somehow we're being disruptors or we're being trouble or what's wrong with you? There's no race problem in America. Why are you acting like this? And it can be devastating to your family. Interracial marriages are not easy and you have to mold cultures. And so I sell that to say that before I leave this earth, I'm going to leave it a better place for women and particularly for women of color, because we have such a hard way to go. We get so mistreated and so disrespected on a daily, just GP. And it's tough. And I don't want my nieces when they're my age, when I'm in my 80s, if I'm still here, to have to go through some of what I went through. Now, they're blessed because they have me. I can open doors. I can pick up the phone. I can mitigate a lot for them that was not mitigated for me. But they're still going to go through stuff. They're still going to deal with things I can't protect them from. And I want to mitigate that as much as I can. This week, my dear listeners, as America continues on its long road to racial justice and equality, I leave you with the words of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., 
It may be 2020, but the words from Dr. King's The Other America from 1968 perfectly capture America's streets today. Quote, I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that the large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these reoccurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Take care and stay safe and stay vigilant, my dear listeners. As cities continue to reopen, just remember that corona is still around, the pandemic is not over, and the virus decides. Stay safe, and until next time, let's keep brewing the chai!